2. Detox I awoke facing the wall, my mouth like cotton. I sensed something amiss and an old familiar feeling. When you wake up from a wild night where memories are sparse or non-existent, a moment of panic can grip you due to the uncertainty of place and time. The drab detox dorm room had two beds in it, both with waterproof mattresses. I rolled over to the sunlight blasting through a window and the first thing I saw outside was a Coors Light billboard near a highway. The irony was striking. I had been drinking that watered-down slop the day before, along with whatever else I could find. The panic gripped me. I had noticed this many years before, even during my first mornings after drinking. If humans had souls, or a root essence, I thought you could experience it via its absence in shaking morning afters when the five senses lay crippled by the hangover. As the saying goes, faith will tell me God is present when my human senses fail. Except it was kind of opposite of that because with my human senses failed, I felt the horrific emptiness because I had wholly rejected faith entirely for a long time. The notion filled me with dread that some part of me had gone missing or had departed or was still downtown or in the bar and I needed that essence to return to me. I needed that part of me to put the rest of the senses and self together again. Whenever I had awoke in a house full of responsible people, my typical response to this lost feeling was to show an artificial health and vigor to get up and appear normal and recovered despite wanting to sleep or die. I've noticed the same in others in hangovers, often at business conferences, when the drinker clearly had a rough night or did something foolish, but they rise and pretend that all is well. To my horror, a clock on the wall showed four o'clock in the afternoon. Having slept all day and not yet called home, this clock signified my betrayal to my family. The mistake I had made this time could not be rubbed out or charmed over. This error in judgment and prudence leapt past the usual cause of grievances in our household. Worst of all, I had been drunk driving while I had a responsibility for my family that day, and I should have woke up at home, not in detox. I knew immediately that this would be a scar upon all of my relationships, all of them. Everyone important in my life suffered because of my choice the night before. Over the coming hours, I cycled through the process of denial, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Then came the shame and the guilt. I had learned about the difference between shame and guilt in a prior attempt to stop drinking. Guilt is feeling bad about something you've done, whereas shame is feeling bad about who you are and that you don't deserve love. Since I like to hold pity parties for myself, I tended to choose a la carte from both of those classifications. Several years before this arrest, before I woke up in detox that day, I had tried earnestly, voluntarily to quit drinking, doing a 28-day outpatient program to fix myself and address the question of what is wrong with me? The propensity to drink and make a mess of life ate at me enough that I had decided to get help. 
In a circle of misfits like me, I nearly walked out on the first day when I read the 12 steps on the wall. The first step required capitulation to a higher power. That verbiage alone nearly caused me to get up and walk out the door. But I stayed. I stayed in that program and did the 28 days, learning a great deal about addiction and how my lizard brain works. At the urging of counselors, I attended AA meetings and even tried to believe in a higher power. At the time, I was atheist or agnostic, depending on the day, and I leaned left politically, mostly only to lean away from the religious right. My position was not for any specific issue, but merely against all things religious, which I felt poisoned the world. At that point in my life, I subscribed to the sermons of Hitchens and Dawkins. The deconstruction of my belief in the Christian God is a long story, which I'll go into more later. Of the many, many things I learned in that 28-day recovery group was that rich or poor, left or right, educated or uneducated, alcohol and drugs do not discriminate. These substances will overpower the strongest will and beguile the most cunning mind. They will feed a person's vanity and shape an ego into whatever form desired. They will lift you up or bring you down, whichever you want or think you prefer. For me, drinking was the tree of knowledge. I suppose that makes Captain Morgan the serpent. Replace the symbolism in Genesis with whatever your vice, and I suspect that the same story can be told. Whatever entices and mesmerizes and steals goodness away from you and replaces love in your heart with negativity is probably your own tree of knowledge of good and evil. Unfortunately for me, even if I avoid one tree, sometimes I find a second tree or a third tree. Detox is primarily a waiting area where you dry out until you can be taken to jail. Hence, each drunkard is allotted ample time to think about and commiserate with others in the same state of limbo. What frustrated me most was that a month before the arrest, I had made life changes. I had quit using tobacco and started exercising, and I was learning to drink socially, controllably. For a month, I had done well. So what happened? It was the same thing that always happened. In hindsight, the spur to action a month earlier had been from drinking too much on a work trip and regretting the outcome. Thus, like every cycle before this cataclysm, I had trodden the same path, drinking lightly for a time, to drinking heavily, to regret and shame, to abstaining and declaring a life change, and back to the beginning. That same cycle repeated for 20 years. A drinker will always forgive himself in order to drink again. The only difference this time was legal consequences, which apparently is what it took. After all, the system is called the Department of Corrections. I needed a correction. Until the arrest, I wasn't unscrambling the obvious message to wake up. An AA group visited the detox facility to hold a meeting. Part of AA members' own penance is to speak to other drinkers in need of help. So I joined their meeting, almost eager to share that I needed to join them and get on track as the disturbance in my family and home life was quaking in me that day. I had tried Alcoholics Anonymous before for a while, but rather than 12-stepping, I did a nine-step and then dumped my sponsor. He had urged me to unhitch from the past 
and latch on to AA full-time, but it felt cultish and separated from the world that I had to live in. Too much God, I thought. I wanted something more scientific, like smart recovery, or psychological explanations, or pharmaceutical solutions. I had read the big book of AA and other AA materials and found it fascinating at first, but it didn't stick. Reading and rereading the big book struck me as pseudo-scriptural, and the writing didn't feel profound enough to merit such continual attention. The chapter titled We Agnostics made me realize what an unoriginal thinker I was, and I was like the chapter's archetype. And the quote is, so touchy that even a casual reference to spiritual things made us bristle with antagonism. It always stings when I find out how predictable and regular I am. My tendencies, I felt, did not need the full treatment of AA as some of us are sicker than others, as the saying goes. Truly, some people have a much worse struggle with alcohol than I did, and I listened in pity to those people. Surely those people needed the whole program. But I had issues with parts of the big book and felt that AA took an anti-intellectual turn in saying what problem drinkers tend to read wordy books and indulge in windy arguments, thinking this universe needs no God to explain it. These references to God in the big book and other places in AA were still fighting words to me. Since books and knowledge sustained me, I saw science and progress as the ultimate good, and spiritual and spiritualism and religion as backward-facing fanaticism and wizardry. In my half-hearted AA attempt, I reached the pink cloud stage where everything was wonderful, where quitting drinking was easy and life was grand. Call it my Pollyanna phase. Then, as the AA members and alcohol counselors warned me, the pink cloud passed by and real life came around with blustering sleet and negative wind chill. I lasted about a year sober. I got my one-year chip as evidence, but never fully bought into the program. I said the prayers and joined hands and even kinda, sorta liked saying the Our Father with the other members. I almost always left an AA meeting feeling lifted up, although my sponsor warned me that feeling good wasn't the point of the meetings, but it was a nice side effect. I can only praise AA despite not attending anymore. So many people slam it for not being the answer, but it gave me a toolkit for dealing with life that was far better than the portrayal of AA in TV and movies. The numerous proverbs that AA taught me still help me in the grind of days. At meetings, people drop these one-liners into conversation that seem backwards at first, but then become profound upon further inspection, and I would marvel at the phrases after hearing them the first time. Sometimes they don't make any sense until a day or week later. And here's a few of them. Surrender to win. Wear the world like a loose shirt. Don't trust your feelings. There's nothing so bad happening in your life that a drink can't make worse. Principles over personalities. One day at a time. Progress, not perfection. Don't quit before the miracle happens. Do the next right action. 
perfection kills. And my favorite one maybe is this last one. An expectation is a planned resentment. I could go on about each one of those as I've learned so much from each one of those statements, but I'll just leave them as is. Hundreds of these sayings exist and I mutter them still today and probably always will. They summon a memory of a person or a face from a meeting, but above and beyond all of those sayings in usefulness and practical application to life is the one sentence that is said at every meeting, the serenity prayer. Yes, the corny serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Trite or not, this sentence acted as a gateway for me to even consider to even deign and lower my high and mighty self to accept that there might be a higher power or God over me. It also taught me that whenever I use the words trite or corny or cliche, I expose my cynicism toward anything wholesome or time-tested. Those words are like a tell in poker for me. I like to apply those labels to anything old-fashioned or traditional. Those trite and cliche things, well, those were tired and expired, and I was so modern and smart. <laughs> it's funny now, with hindsight, my way of life was what had really become tired and expired. So in the beginning, I would not say the first word of the serenity prayer, God, in order for myself to secularize the prayer, because the prayer still works without the first word. However, without it, the rest still implies that I'm speaking to some higher power, some thing that can grant the serenity. Otherwise, to what am I asking for serenity from if not the spirit of the universe or Gaia or Zeus or God or Hawaiian Pele or something? So much of life can be cut to the chase with this little sentence. Yet it is so simple. The serenity prayer in its plainness is like a razor that can cleave through thoughts with ease. If I were to successfully apply the principles of that prayer alone to my daily decisions, with no other rules or aphorisms or moral guidance, I could quickly separate the meaningful from the useless. You take the problem, thought, or decision and ask yourself, can I change this? If not, then you drop the subject because it's beyond your power. If you can change it, then you decide if you are willing to take up the challenge to change it. And if you are willing, you do the work. If you are not willing, then you don't. Surely the wisdom part is the tricky thing here, especially for someone who is all too human, like myself. The prayer contains a Venn diagram of the world within it, where you can place life's issues into one of two circles, accept or change. Wisdom is knowing into which circle to push each problem. By the time I had attended the AA meeting in detox, I had met many of the other people in residence with me and found all types of people, jailhouse lawyers, 
hard alcoholics in denial, and drug addicts who had somehow even found a way to get drugs into detox, which baffled me. Like a field trip, detox feels like a tour or a museum of people that are captured from their natural habitat and paused for a time of reflection. After 36 hours of sobering up, after some tears and anxiety, the arresting police officer returned and picked me up for my next stop, which was the county jail. Cuffed again, and back in the police car, I discussed what would happen next with the police officer who told me I was one of his favorite arrests due to the interesting conversation we had during booking, none of which I remembered, other than a snapshot or two captured in my mind during the blackout. An awareness of my powerlessness had set in through the hours of detox, and the handcuffs were the physical reminder of my lack of control while I rode in the car. No choices could be made by me. No media, no snacks, no smartphone. Possibly for the first time I understood what freedom actually meant, since in taking these things away, I only then realized what freedom my life had been as an American in the late 20th century and early 21st century. I had been born in the most, quote, free time in history with the least personal struggles. There was no war, there was no disease, there was no death, and yet I had invented my own struggles and even felt depressed most of the time. In fact, I had been taking depression medication for years, all during the easiest and least challenging period in history. I kept thinking about the AA saying that drinkers suffer from a, quote, spiritual malady, and they suffer from their own will. This sense of powerlessness did a ride-along as the police car entered the county jail intake door. <laughs>